This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. However you feel about evolution, survival of the fittest, we've got an audio that may show you, um, I don't know. There's just a time where you got to let nature take its course. A bear came across a a solo kayaker, Mary Maley, who was on a solo kayaking trip from Ketchikan to Petersburg, Alaska. And, uh, you know, was posted outside of uh, the U.S. Forest Service cabin in Berg Bay. And uh, she had just carried her tent, food, and gear into the cabin before she was going to go on a four-mile hike, I guess. So she just removed the food from her kayak and carried it up to the cabin. Well, she heard something outside while she was having her lunch, and she came out to find a bear, right? Um, And the bear started to approach her, and this is the beginning of... I'm pretty sure not the best bear handling technique. Let's listen. No! Get away from the kayak! Stop it, bear! Bear, you're breaking it! You're breaking my kayak! Why are you breaking my kayak? What am I going to do? Stop that, bear! Bear, stop! Stop breaking my kayak, please! Please She is the nicest victim of a bear uh, terroristic act on a kayak I've ever heard. She didn't even swear. That was, okay, it's a bear. It's a bear. It's doing what bears do. By the way, this is after the bear started getting curious about her and followed. uh, She could smell the food she was out there eating. And, uh. Holy cow. Gosh darn it. Oh, why are you doing that? Gosh darn it. You bear. She's talking to it like it's um like it's her child. Not like a ferocious wild animal that could kill her. And she even and we didn't have the audio for that, but as the bear approached, she said, "I'm going to spray you with pepper spray." She is so nice. I'm sure the bear feels really good about her. It's not even food. It doesn't even taste good. No. It's not even food, bear. It's plastic. It's 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 a carcinogen. You ought not be eating that, bear. It's just plastic. <laughs> She's obviously stressed, but you know, maybe a really loud noise. You know? If she had a gun, don't know if she did, maybe that's where you use a gun to just 
shoot a gun and the bear would run away. Or in that case, a bomb. She could just drop a bomb. Why are you here? You're supposed to be asleep. (laughs) You're supposed to be asleep. Hey, bear, did you not know it's sleepy time? Why aren't you hibernating? Holy cow. (sighs) Now, this is a perfect example of where if we just let nature be nature... Mary would be dead because if you're going to talk to a bear that way, by the way, the bear destroyed the kayak. Please stop breaking my thing. <laughs> She's very nice. Please stop breaking my things. Oh, wow. She ended up, the bear left, I think to probably go hibernate because he didn't know. What she doesn't know is there's like no bare deadline to hibernate. You know, when it's just ready, it's just going to go. She's like, I You're thought. supposed to be asleep. Yeah. Well, she had to then, she tried to call down. There's a sailboat out there in the, in the bay and she tried to get a hold of the people on the sailboat, but she, they couldn't, she couldn't get a hold of them. So she had to swim in the cold water out to the sailboat. Oh, Oh, it's just so funny. This is why, you know, you know, people laugh about all these hunters and the fishermen and all these outdoorsmen that have guns. But that would have been a good time to have a gun, not to shoot the bear. You don't need to kill the bear. Just fire the gun and scare the bear away. You could just scream. And she notice what she used. Questions? Why are you eating my thing? What if the bear just what said... What am I do? What you're going to do, lady? What if the bear just stood up and put his hands on his hips and like, okay, what I want you to do is shut your cake hole. You're making too much noise and you're stressing me out. That's, that's just funny. That's just funny. It's such a contrast... It just seems like she's a city slicker. Please stop! Please, wild animal. I think she's talking to you, Matt. Is she is she talking to me? Yeah. Am I beating this dead horse? Please stop. Can't you just see like a mountain lion rawr, ripping? Please, why are you doing this? You're going to ruin my shirt. Gosh darn it! Oh, <laughs> why are you doing that? Oh, I bet you she's such a lovely woman. She really is. I'm sure she's the she's the kind of woman. By the way, she's videotaping the whole thing. And she, you can see the bear walk up to her and she's like, I'm going to spray you with pepper spray. Like it's a warning. You kids. I'm going to get you. Anyway, she sprays the bear. She's lucky to be alive. She reminds me of you, Ben. Lovely person. That time when the raccoon came in? Yeah. Silly raccoon grabbing on my neck, sticking it's your teeth. <laughs> anyway, great, uh, great lessons for all of us. There's a time to be nice. There's a time to, like, 
plead, and she used orders. Stop that. She used questions. She said, please and thank you. She would have said, gosh, instead of swearing. I totally appreciate that. There's just a point that it wasn't working. He thrashed your kayak. Make a noise. Scare the thing. Just scare it. Throw a rock at it. I didn't want to hurt it. Of course you didn't. You're just lucky to be alive. Hope we've all learned a lesson today. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're... They're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, And it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits. Okay, And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Isn't that interesting? One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? I mean, like they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua news agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So... A single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan. Is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they, uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start 
taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs, and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern, doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try, try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. Anyway, we'll take a break. We'll come back. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We will be back. What do Ralph Lauren... Bill Walsh, George Lucas, and Mary Kay Ash have in common? Well, besides being really big names in the business world and being known as exceptional leaders, there is one thing that distinguishes them from their peers. It is their ability to groom talent and train a new generation of leaders. They fit into a new category of people that our next guest, Dr. Finkelstein, likes to call super bosses. Uh, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein um, sat down with us. We did an interview with him about... um, a super boss and, and an article that he wrote uh, about the super boss and the, the power to become an exceptional leader and master the flow of talent. We sat down with him a, a little while ago. And when I sat down with him, the first question I asked was this, what is a super boss? You know, a super boss is, uh, we all, we've all had bosses. A super boss is a boss that actually helps us get better, helps us accomplish more than we ever could have done otherwise. It's the ideal boss, and in the process, the boss gets better, but we get much better as well, and it accelerates our career, creates opportunities for us. Well, and right now, everybody listening, they might have a super boss. It might not be their current boss, but, I mean, somewhere in their life, they've probably run into or experienced somebody that, that just stretched them to be better. Yeah, and I think that's uh, I think that's right. The more I talk to people about this idea about super bosses, the more people relate, and they always reflect back on the various bosses uh, that that everyone's had. And you know, sometimes they're good ones, sometimes they're not so good ones. And occasionally, you get this this super boss, this person that really helped your career and really uh, cared enough about you to help you get better. Mm. It's a fantastic thing. What what made you want to focus on this? I mean, as a as a business professor, you, I mean, you you could focus on any topic. Why the super boss? Yeah, it's a great question. I I, uh, I actually noticed the pattern in a couple of industries that I found really fascinating. So, for example, if you look at the NFL, and I'm a big football fan, yeah. and you look at head coaches and the trees of talent that. Uh, some have talked about in the past. It turns out that Bill Walsh, the former head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, was just a giant developer of talent. You go look at many of his assistant coaches. Uh, they, they went on to become head coaches. In fact, you know, this past season that just concluded in the NFL, out of the 32 head coaches, 20 came from the tree of talent of Bill Walsh. Wow. So I noticed that. I thought, wow, it's an unbelievable thing. Who else is out there? Who is doing this? And how is that happening? And that kind of got me rolling on this whole question. 
No, that and that is so true. And then it's interesting too because a lot of them also became super coaches, super bosses themselves, right? They they've almost learned how to keep growing the talent. Yeah, that's the ideal thing. You know, when you have that special boss that teaches you, that helps you, and then you go off and get a bigger job yourself, are you going to pay it back to, to, to others? Are you going to help them get better? And, you know, if you have an organization loaded with people like this, you're going to win a lot more than you otherwise would. Yeah. Is that not the competitive advantage? It seems like everyone can – I mean, and they do in the NFL too, for example. They, they can take your coach. They can pay them more, but you can't necessarily just make somebody a super boss. No, you. Uh, you can't, it doesn't just happen without uh, without a lot of a lot of effort. But the truth is, I think Matt, anyone can become a super boss in any walk of life. Even if you're, you know, a supervisor in a in a factory, if you're running an office, or you're uh, uh, you're a sales manager, whatever you happen to be, I think anyone could become a super boss. You have to want to do it. You have to think about it. But it's not impossible to do it. It's not, it's not rocket science, yeah, but right. it is a little bit of hard work. Talk about what is – like what are the strategies? What are the behaviors that a super boss might manifest that, that, that's different than just the average boss? Well, it starts with uh, where you get the talent from in the first place. Super bosses go out of, uh, out of their shell looking for talent. They're talent spotters. They're always on the lookout. And you know, there's a great story, again, about Bill Walsh. He went out to, um, to scout a really highly touted quarterback – and the quarterback was uh, was practicing and trying out and throwing the ball to uh, a second stringer on the team who was his co- his roommate in college. And there was something about that second stringer that really got Bill Walsh's attention. He goes back. He doesn't he doesn't draft the 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 big name quarterback. He drafts in the eighth or tenth round the uh, the guy he was throwing the ball to. And you know who that turned out to be? Who it was Dwight Clark? Who oh, was it really? The yeah, the catch. <laughs> The catch, exactly. So they're looking for talent in unusual places. They're always on the hunt for talent, and, they're, and they think about it that way. And then once you have those people, once you have people with that type of potential, the question really becomes how could you help them get better? And they do it by motivating them. They do it by teaching them. And they, you know, they also do it by inspiring. It's, uh, it's one of these soft words, but it really means something. You know, they get people all fired up and energized. And, you know, Ralph Lauren, another one of the super bosses, you know, the fashion king, he used to tell his people, you know, everybody follows us. We set the standard. We're the ones that they all look to to see what's going on in the world of fashion. And that, and that, you got to believe that. You got to be authentic with that. But that so gets people so so energized, so inspired that they want to just run through a brick wall to make everything happen for that super boss, and they get better in the process. Yeah, and I guess if you have the talented people, um, and and the, and they're inspired, then something special can come from that. It seems like some bosses are. They might be afraid to hire people more talented than themselves. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, uh, I think that I think that does happen. Um, insecurity is a real damaging uh, element of uh, human nature, and certainly in organizations. But if you just step back for a minute and think about it, if you hire smarter people, better people, and they're working for for you, don't you think you're going to be able to perform more effectively? Right. You're going to hit your own targets, your own goals. Um, that's not a bad thing. They're going to make you look better. If you hire a bunch of people that are weaker, that uh, you know, don't really match up to you, you might feel like you know more than they do. But how are they going to help you accomplish what you need to get accomplished? Right. Even if they move on, right? Even if, they, even if they're only there for five years because they're so exceptional, they're picked away, you, you, still, you still have them as a relationship. You still can have them as a peer. It's powerful. 
Yeah, you can. You you really and you want to work that that network. And this is not you know a, a network that you're just talking to people every now and then. You look at uh, say uh, Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live. Of course, so many great talents have gone out, off of that show, become you know world famous people. Uh, you just look at late night TV as one example with Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers. Well, guess who the executive producer mm. is of both of those shows? Turns out to be Lorne Michaels. So even though he's lost in quotes great talent. He's figured out a way to continue to work with them and benefit from those relationships. Interesting. And and then still, and maybe he's the executive producer because he's still seen by these mega talents as inspiring and able to get yeah. more out of them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. That's power, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, we all, we all do whatever it is we do in our careers and our jobs. But we're talking a little bit here of, of legacy, uh, uh, you know, if you really think about it, Matt. And legacy is a great thing. We all do what we do. But imagine you can look back at your career at any point in time and you can say, wow, I really helped other people do more than they ever thought possible. Did Jimmy Fallon think he was going to, you know, be the successor to Johnny Carson right. uh, when, he, when he was, you know, a 20-year-old trying out for, uh, for SNL? I, I don't think so. But, wow, and when you look at what, what Lorne Michaels was able to help happen, take a great talent and accelerate their careers. It's it's pretty exciting. Mm. It's um, I guess part of it is their ability to 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 see the talent, but then I guess it's also their ability to to raise up the talent to to push back. What have you learned about that? What what do they? How do they hire people differently? And and how do they actually maximize the talent of their people? Yeah. So they the, so they're definitely looking for what I call diamonds in the rough. Those uh, those people that. Um, Maybe not everyone else is is looking for, and they're always on the lookout uh, lookout for talent. But what they really do on a day to day basis is really uh, remarkable. They their uh, super bosses will roll up their sleeves and work with their with their staff members, their team members, their employees. Um, not every day, you know, doing that because they have their own work to do. But they get close to the word that so many people get nervous about. You know, what the word is it's micromanagement. You don't want to go over that line. Right. But what is wrong with actually engaging closely with the people that work for you? And in fact, super bosses do that. You, you know what it's like? It's uh, it, it's like that the old way that people used to learn how to do whatever it is they were going to do in their career. It's called an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. and it's the way it's the way the world of work operated for centuries, and it's gone by the wayside. And I think what super bosses have, have done is they've recognized that there are, there are elements of this apprenticeship approach to helping other people get better, this close hand-to-hand working, this constant uh, teaching and motivating that, uh, that really can be beneficial. I think it's a great thing. Mm. And um, I, I, that's, uh, there's something, too, when you have to mentor somebody, when, because you – you actually might systematize your thinking too a little bit, and so, so you're making you're actually reevaluating what you do do every day, to, in order yeah. to better instill it into others or share it with others. It's a it's a great point because it does it does sharpen you. You know, I've often said, and of course I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, uh, so it's kind of the thing I do. But I've often said that anyone who teaches someone else about whatever whatever the material is, whatever the idea is, they're going to get much better at it themselves by the mere fact that they are teaching. It's really a remarkable thing. And so this is also happening for, happening for super bosses. And, and then you add one other element that I, I love about what super bosses do, and I'm sure many people listening will, will know if their boss does this or will maybe wish their boss did, does, did this, but they, the super bosses customize how they motivate, 
and interact with the people on their team. Mm. It's one thing to talk about, you know, leadership styles and all this type of stuff. And everyone's different. Everyone, you know, we all have our personal style of how we operate. But what super bosses are able to do is put to the side how they might prefer to operate and customize how they interact with the individuals on their team to get the most out of them and to teach them the different things that, that you know, different people on the team don't all need to learn exactly the same thing. And that type of customization is a really powerful uh, a really powerful element, I think, of what the Superboss playbook is all about. Mm, excellent stuff. Let's take a break. Again, we are speaking with Sidney F- um, Finkelstein, uh, who is the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Tuck Center for Leadership at Dartmouth College. Uh, powerful lessons here um, from his book, Super Bosses: How Exceptional the Flow of Talent. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and continue this discussion um, about how this can impact your business, your life, and really your legacy, as uh, Dr. Finkelstein's been teaching us. We'll be right back. More right after the break. To the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like you have a super boss, a boss that understands you, your talent, and knows how to get the best out of you? Are you a super boss? Well, joining us is the author of the book, Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent, which was published just last month. And uh, he's he's also a professor at um, Tuck at Dartmouth. Um, his name again is Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. He's the Stephen Roth Professor of Management, Faculty Director at Tuck Center for Leadership at the University of Dartmouth, and um, we're honored to have you back again, Dr. Finkelstein. Great work on this bo- on the book Super Bosses. Thank you, Matt. I, um, I I love business books and especially you know well researched, well cited books. Talk to me about. Uh, in the HBR article, the Harvard Business Review article that you did, you talked about three types of super bosses. What are those? The glorious winners, yeah. and what, explain those three. Sure. Um, and I, you know, in doing this uh, research, I didn't know I'd end up with this this kind of um, uh, analysis of these three types, but they're the ones that kept coming up time and time again. So the first. I call nurturers, and they're maybe closest to what many people might think about as as mentors. They're kind of super mentors. They do. They really do help you get better. They care about what what uh, about your development, and uh, it's kind of their their mindset. Norman Brinker, uh, who started the Brinker's chain, Chili's uh, restaurant chain, uh, he's he's the classic nurturer. So many people that work for him are today senior executives in at. P.F. Chang, at Lone Star, at all kinds of different uh, multi-unit restaurant chains. Uh, second category is more of a, uh, more about creative types, and I call them iconoclasts. Uh, these are people that um, uh, are in creative industries in some way, Lorne Michaels, uh, Miles Davis even in jazz, that, uh, um, that help other people get better as a natural kind of organic outgrowth of the work that they're doing. So they, they attract great people, great talent that want to work with, uh, with, with you know, the Lorne Michaels of the world, and they interact and they, and they help other people get better just in a kind of a natural type of, type of way. Hmm. And then the third 
Uh, the third type are the maybe the most unusual. They are tough as could be, uh, but boy, if you can survive and and deal with the pressure that they put on you, the the career trajectory is gigantic. And who's an example like, of one of the glorious type? Yeah, uh, well, Larry Ellison, the founder and longtime CEO, now chairman of of Oracle. Oh yeah, uh, is in that category, and then, you know people that work for him, and he's got that <laughs> reputation of being really really tough. And it goes to show you, you know, that you can be a super boss, and being a super boss doesn't mean that you're just kind of a, a soft touch that just cares about people. Yeah, huggy, huggy. That, yeah, it's certainly possible. Nothing wrong with that. No one's going to say there's anything wrong with that. But there are other ways to, to get to the same place. And you look at some of the some of the people that work for Lauren Michael uh, for uh, Larry Ellison over the years, and you have you know Mark Benioff, who's today the CEO of Salesforce.com, and Craig uh, Conway and uh, Ray Lane. And a lot of superstars have come out of uh, his his management ranks. It seems like the way this is uh, you're describing the book um, is super boss is it's you can be any type of the three or more maybe, but it's you you need to just I guess care about results and care enough about and know enough about how to get it out of the people without crushing them, destroying yeah, them. You're right. You're, you're right. I mean, there are there are different ways to get to the same place in terms of your motivation, where you start, and those are these three categories of the you know the iconoclast, etc. But you know what was really fascinating is when you look at the details of what they do, what super bosses do, no matter what their initial motivation may have been or their style may have been, they do so many of the same things, hmm. and that's and that became what I call the super boss playbook. And obviously, there's a lot. There's a lot to it, but it has to do with a couple of things that we've already talked about, how you find talent, um, motivation, and you know, pushing people, raising the bar, very high expectations, inspiring people, teaching people, coaching people, all these types of things, and the specific techniques or methods, lots of stories about how they do it. They're actually very, very common, despite how different these personalities happen to be. Wow. And is it... Um... I mean, I guess it adaptable is probably part of the key too, right? I mean, there's some people that you probably couldn't be the nurturer with. So, yeah, well, do, or do these people just kind of those those people just wouldn't grow up underneath that type of leader? They yeah, they, they you know, would they just opt out? You 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 know, getting uh, finding the right place to be at any stage of life. This is true for personal lives, but it's certainly true for work lives. And getting a, a boss that you can manage and work with, I'll say two things about it. Number one, for, for anyone who has a super boss uh, as their boss, uh, they are going to have to keep pace with that boss. They, uh, they're going to have to be working. They're going to have to be willing to make the commitment to work really, really hard to uh, do all the things that super bosses expect you to do. It's not, it's not easy even for the nurturers that are, you right. know, are a little bit more supportive. Not easy to do. You, you have to be prepared to do that. And then secondly, I, I have to say this, not everyone has the same ambition and aspirations in life. And working for a super boss is one of the best ways you can accelerate your career, turbocharge your career, create gigantic opportunities. But, you know, let's face it, there are some people that don't want to have that out of their work life. They want to put in their 40 hours and they want to contribute, but they, they, they're, they're not looking to advance in the same way. Working for a super boss won't work, and, and actually they'll discover that very quickly because the super boss won't let them stay with them. The, the super bosses only want people that have that, that aspiration, have that energy to get 
to get better and do more with their with their careers and their lives. So can I as can can do does the super boss find the the ideal candidate or as candidates can we go looking for our super boss? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about that, you know, because super working for a super boss for many people it, it just sounds fantastic, and it is yeah. for those people lucky enough to have that experience. So, how do you find them? And of course, that's the first question that I, you know, uh, students that I talk to, uh, undergraduate students, MBA students, they're always asking that question. And I think you can. So here's a, here are a couple of tips. Um, let's say you're interviewing for a job. And you're interviewing the person that's going to be your direct boss, or potentially, if you get the job, is going to be your direct boss. Why not ask questions like, um, tell me a little bit about some of the people that worked for you in the past and where they are today. Hmm. And, of course, what you want to hear is that they've moved, their, they've moved on in their careers to bigger and better opportunities. Uh, tell, tell me how you spend, you know, what is a typical day for you like? Most people will ask, what, what, is a, what does a day look like for, for yourself? In the job, but ask your boss, what does a typical day look like for you? And what you want to listen for is if some, uh, you, you don't want a boss that pushes herself or himself into a world where they're going meeting after meeting after meeting, totally scripted, because there's no opportunity to be a super boss if you allow other people to dominate and control your schedule. Mm. We all got meetings, we know that they're not going to go away, but does that mean that you have to be operating in this type of totally scripted way, or is there any room for? almost like freelancing as a leader, where you could walk the halls, where you could spend 5 or 10 or 20 minutes or an hour with somebody, again, rolling up your sleeves and working, uh, working with them. So you could ask, and there are many other questions you could ask um, or look for in your, in, your, in your conversations with prospective bosses. But these are things, these are, those are a couple of examples of things you can look for. Well, the very, the very thought that you're interviewing your boss is, is already a sign that you're, you probably are a super talent, right? Because you're, you're almost shopping which boss you want to work for instead of when you're desperate and you don't feel like a super talent. Um, a lot of times you just, you'll do anything to get in. So what do you want me to be? What do you need me to be? I'll be whatever you want. But you're yeah. saying you go in there. And if, I guess if you're going in with talent um, and a willingness to work and, and do whatever to succeed, um, yeah, then interviewing your boss, that is power. Uh, uh, it's absolutely right, but you know you you have to not communicate effectively. Yeah, you got to you got to ask these questions. I think in an appropriate way, and I think the examples I just gave are yeah. not you know they're not outrageous. You can you can do that as part of a conversation. But you know what we're really talking about here is a mindset for an individual that says you know I can have a little bit more control over my life. I can accomplish whatever it is I want to accomplish in my life. And I'm going to go for it. And we know there's bumps in the roads and not everything works out. We understand that. But we also know that if you don't start with that mindset or you don't adopt that mindset, then you don't really have a chance. You've got to start with something. And so I like that idea of, of, of thinking about that and, 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 and you know, interviewing your, your, your boss or your prospective boss. You might not necessarily get everything you want to hear. You might choose for a variety of reasons to settle for something. That's, everyone's in a different situation. But... You know, why not start with that mindset that right. that's what I want? Well, and two, when you get in the company, you might you might see other super bosses to go to next or, you know, to, to move and to negotiate your career. As we wrap it up. You brought up earlier, um, Sydney, about this idea of legacy. And so talk maybe just in, talk and let us understand more about what what is the what is our legacy? What 
because there's a lot of people listening that are great bosses. They may be not a super boss, but they want to pick their game up. But when you mean legacy, what is the legacy of a boss? Yeah, well, let me give you an example. Um, I mentioned Norman Brinker before, the guy that started the Chili's restaurant yeah. chain, steak and ale, Brinker's International, legendary person in his industry, truly a, uh, a classic nurturer and developer of talent. And um, you, uh, uh, I remember when he, when he died, which is just a few years ago, um, and his protégés, the f- former employees that are, uh, that are doing these kind of amazing things these days, uh, running their own businesses or senior executives, they took out full-page ads in newspapers around the country. And, and I, still have a, I still have the actual thing from the newspaper. I think it was the Wall Street Journal that I saw it in. And they have a nice picture of him on the top, and then in the bottom half they have a few things that they say about him. And they talk about his career. But the one line that struck me when I read it was, you know, Norman, thank you, Norman, you were more than just a, a great leader. You, when you walked into the room, you helped everybody else get better. You cared about everyone else. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's a legacy that we're, we all can strive for. We, could, we all could work for. I've seen it in a lot of other, uh, with a lot of other super bosses um, of, a, of an elder, uh, el- when, when they're late, later in their career, and people that were affected by them, coming up to tell them, to talk to them, to thank them. Um, I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of ways to live a life and, and live a career. And we all want to be successful. Of course, we want personal wealth and other, other wonderful things. But legacy might be the single most important thing that we're going to remember when, uh, when, our, when, when we're getting towards the end of our, uh, of our run. And uh, why not go for it and go for it uh, right as early as you can and adopt some of the super boss approach. Mm, love it. Uh, and great, great advice from you. Again, thank you, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. Appreciate your great work. And uh, thanks for spending this time with us. Oh, thanks, Matt. Really enjoyed it. You bet. Go look up the book, the book Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And uh, really what you're getting is faculty director from the Tuck Center for Leadership at uh, Dartmouth College or Dartmouth University. You're getting the best. Um, it's power, folks. Power is in your legacy. Uh, it's one thing to go fulfill a job. It's another thing to not be forgotten because of it, to have influenced many, many other lives. That's why we do the show, folks. We want focus on legacy, not just on your income when it comes to your life and your job. We'll take a break, come back, uh, wrap it up with a little tiny little coach's corner up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. See, Ben, super boss. That's... You always tell me that, like, when I have a question for you, yeah. you say, I'm not your boss. Talk to Don. Yeah. Well, I say that because I'm super busy, and you have a lot of questions. So D- Don's more your training boss and your direct report boss. But isn't that what he was talking about in the interview? Well, I think he was talking more about your 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 guide on the side, your inspiration, the the person that puts the pass in the passion. The pass and the passion? What's that supposed to mean? I don't know. I just made it up. I throw you the pass. Oh. And throw then, it deep and sell it cheap. Throw it deep and sell it cheap, one of my favorite memes. 
Yeah. So I'm super boss. But um, let's just say that you had a Burmese python problem in your state, right? Well, Florida does. So they uh, basically have captured over 106 Burmese pythons due to a hunt that they held to control the invasive snakes population. Apparently, uh, people buy snakes like pythons, and then when they start getting too big, they go to Florida and release them. Crazy. Well, uh, the longest python caught during the hunt was a 15-foot-long Burmese python caught by a team led by Bill Booth of Sarasota. Booth's team also took home a prize for the largest haul of snakes, 33 pythons they caught, and over 1,000 people from 29 states registered to remove pythons from South Florida's wetlands. I mean, that is crazy. Well, let's just go on some pythons in the Everglades. 13-foot, 8.7-inch uh, python that won the prize for the longest python caught by an individual. Um, this person faced layoff from his landscaping job. He completed the Wildlife Commission's online training, spent a month biking for over 40 miles a day, all to get in shape to go and eventually bag 13 pythons. Ben, would you ever go python hunting? No. Good answer. Good answer. See, that was smart. Is it because you can't bike, you know, 40 miles a day? No, I think it's just hunting a snake that could kill me. That worries you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd get ripped if I biked 40 miles a day. You'd get more ripped. Well, yeah, that's what I meant. (laughs) I would just rip. I'd get hurt. (laughs) If I was doing that. Yeah. On What do you do when you bring in a 15-foot-long python? That's crazy. Crazy talk. Um, here's another one. If you're looking for a New Zealand job, there is a job in New Zealand, and it pays great. Uh, a rural uh, New Zealand uh, is uh, county, I guess, is offering a $400,000 annual income. So if you want to make four hundred grand. You, uh, your job is to you're, – you're going to be a medic, and you're going to share your work burden – so after two years of searching for the position, it's still unfulfilled. Nobody wants to go be a medic in New Zealand. Dr. Alan Kenny co-owns a medical practice in the modest town of Tokoroa, which has a population of about 13,600 p uh, 600 people. The GP, originally recruited from the U.K., told the New Zealand general practitioner, originally recruited from the U.K., told the New Zealand Herald his practice has exploded but he is overworked and has repeatedly had to cancel holidays because of the difficulty of finding a replacement doctor. So if you need a job and you're a doctor, for four hundred grand a year, you can go to New Zealand. And you get basically three months of annual leave um, and you know other benefits. So we're here to get you a job. It might be worth getting a general practitioner medical degree. Hit New Zealand and four hundred grand, and then in your off days, go up to Florida, hunt Burmese python, make some money. Who says the economy is not rebounding? There are places. The python market is booming. Python market is booming. New Zealand has got a great medical job. I mean, really, there's only six thousand patients on the books. How hard? How hard could that be? We're here to help, folks. 
doing what we can on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Remember, you can find us on iTunes, on TuneIn. You can go download the BYU Radio app for Android or for iOS. You can download the show in a variety of places or listen to us live. You can also go to BYURadio.org and live stream it. Just look us up. It's the Matt Townsend Show, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. Stick with us. Sit tight. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. There's a YouTube video of a, of a, a sister um, and, a, and some brothers. Um, everybody has seen, you know, when you get your wisdom teeth out, they pull your teeth, and then they drug, you're all drugged up. And then a lot of people have been making vi- videos about, you know, how out of control you are or the dumb things you say when you're under the influence of the medication after surgery, right? So this these two brothers uh, have basically – they picked their sister up and for some reason mom and dad are like, yeah, do this. This is a great idea because they seem to have been involved. And they put this elaborate scheme together that once the sister was all drugged up and they were bringing her home – they they had this basically scheme where on the radio an emergency alert comes up that basically says um, that that there's basically a zombie apocalypse that there's a virus that's spreading and um, this woman is under drugs and her uh, so let me just play some of the clips for you this is crazy um, this is the uh, emergency alert system. So, what the heck? Did you? What? <laughs> I driving like a slug to get to the house. Hold on, hold on, mom's calling. So, the girl's <laughs> her mouth is packed with gauze, and she's like, "You're driving like a slug. Get to the house." She's mad. She's you know she's post surgery, high on drugs, angry. And the brothers, um, but they, they they had this elaborate thing playing. So all of a sudden, she buys into the fact that there's a zombie apocalypse. But then we get home, and they're trying to fill the car up with stuff. And you got to ask questions, right? You got to find out like what do we keep, what do we not keep. Listen um, to uh, the next clip about uh, this is about which animal, which pet we keep. Which pet? The cat or the dog? The cat. You okay. idiot! Okay. No. What do we do with the dog? Okay, we're, okay, 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 I'll pick up the cat. Mom said we're leaving the dog. Okay, that's fine. Okay, um. <laughs> so you have to choose between the dog and the cat. She's like, the cat, you idiot. Duh. The dog's already dying. <laughs> and um, the next one is about what, what chocolate cake we should take. Millicent, we can only take Fun Betty or chocolate cake. Which one it's do we take? Fun- Betty, you want Bum Betty or chocolate? Why Which? No, Millicent, this is important. This will be what we're living off of. Which one? Bum Betty, chocolate. <laughs> why? Why? She's yelling. Why does it matter? They're zombies. No, this is important. Important, Millicent. Bum Betty or chocolate? Um, 
And then they got to go to Mexico, right? Because dad, I guess, is on a trip in, in Las Vegas and they got to get to Mexico, dad says. Dad said that since he's in Las Vegas, that he's close to Mexico and he wants us to meet him in Mexico. How good is your Spanish still from high school? I, I, I can say pants. <laughs> I can say I can say pants. So this poor girl, <laughs> she's sitting in the car the whole time, and the brothers are running around. That's why they're out of breath. At one point, they're loading gardening equipment they're in the back, gardening. and she goes, what do we need a garden hoe for? Yeah. Get the guns. What are we doing? They hand her a supposed weapon with a trigger, but it's really one of those extension bars for seniors that help them get their cereal off the top shelf. Yeah. The little grabber bar. Like, Here's the safety, and here you... <laughs> So then they then they're like so Millicent we about Costco they got to go to Costco should we go to Costco listen to her reply do you think Costco should we go to Costco first no it's gonna be a bloodbath in there <laughs> she's probably right she's probably right should we go to Costco no it's gonna be a bloodbath in there they filmed the entire thing so we're gonna post it on our at uh, Doctor Matt Show Twitter feed and you gotta you gotta look it up it is it's funny. It's funny. It's brother, sister gone awry. That that line um, about the cat. Did you see how she knew exactly which one she keeps? Oh yeah. Like there wasn't even a break. <laughs> she hates the dog. The cat. The dog is dying. <laughs> We're going with the cat. Um, but then it was so. Even though they, it was like, it was a pretty extensive game they played on their sister they saved her because right when they told her yeah at the end they're like uh, it's a joke we're gonna go home now she got this look in her eye and you it was like that moment where you know she's either gonna lose it start crying or freak out and start hurting somebody and they turn the video off i think it'll be worse when she's you know i think it was worse when she came out of the drug haze that yeah. she was in <laughs> Once she realized what was there and she saw the video, she'd probably go nuts. I know. I'm dying to know what she felt about that. But who, what brother hasn't loved to play a trick like that on their sister? They would, we'd all like to do that. Did you ever have a family member tease sure. you? At some point. I mean, we had my brother convinced he was adopted. That's, that's a common one. <laughs> well, that's an easy one. Everyone does, does that one. My sister and I look like my father's side of the family. Yeah. My brother looks like my mother's side of the family. So it was an easy, easy uh, adopted. story to, to buy. That's traumatic. That's, poor, that's sad it's, for him. It's fine. He's, he's, he's grown out of it. My sisters used to just say, hey, touch the lighter. So <laughs> in, back in the day, cars had lighters that you'd push in. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd stick and then you pull them out. And then there's these orange coils that are just... Glowing Steaming. hot, yeah. yeah glowing I used to hot. play with that all the time. And that one of my sisters was like, touch it. And now that's that's your electrical port. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now that's just where we plug our our tools and our devices in. So things have changed. I mean, I'd probably rather have a zombie apocalypse threat than have somebody tell me to touch a fiery coil of lava. Right. Just saying. I used to sit in the car and burn stuff on it. Did you? Yeah, like we had paper in the you know just in, in the glove compartment, you're yeah. like, and then toss it out the window. <laughs> Those were the days. Again, back in the days when we didn't care about kids, we didn't buckle them in, we didn't just have seats, slide around the back seat. Yeah. It's fine. Don't worry about this it. This is great, Dad. Do you remember when you got in the car and the seat belts were scalding hot? My first car seat as a kid was made out of uh, foam, but most of the foam was gone, so it was just metal and like duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> and look how you turned out. It's great. You're fine. Interesting stuff, folks. Man, have have we changed technology, bringing families closer together. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We could make up whatever story you need to make up. 
to get over the wall. The problem is it's your wall. Some of us, instead of getting over the wall, we just, you know, build a really nice lattice that we secure to the wall. And then we create really nice, you know, shrubs around the wall. We paint the wall. We maybe draw a really nice painting and picture on it so we can enjoy the wall more. Maybe you just ought to get over the wall. Now, believe me, there's many things I just have trouble getting over. And yet, as I listen to Jason, you're like, well, duh, make a list. And doesn't, does it not make sense to make the list and make it detailed? If, if on the list I today put, write the first chapter of my book. I have four books that are in my head. I've even white papered them. That's how, that's how far I've gotten is I've actually written complete outlines on four different books. <laughs> Haven't written them yet. I've written one book, and the problem is that book, that wall, shredded me. So I am like, I am never going to go write another book. But I have some great white papers if you want to read them. But then I have this thing in my head and my heart that keeps saying, hey, Matt, you got to write this book. Or I'll go do a speech, and they'll all say, tell us more about that body, mind, spirit idea. Well, it's going to be in my upcoming book. When will that be out? At this rate, 2060, if we're lucky. I mean, I got this wall. I've got to get over it. And I'm you. You're me. We're the same people. We've all got something. But make the list. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And then be willing to just toss the list tonight. Okay, I'm done. Didn't get it all done. But I did get my computer set up, and I did uh, tighten up that the white paper on my book. I, t- I, t- I tightened up my outline. Great. Tomorrow, let's just start writing it. Okay, what do I need to do to write it? Make some time, create the space, sit down, lock my door to my office, offend everyone in the office so they don't come near me. Make the list. And take a break. Um, how essential is the break idea? Now, some of us just maybe take too many breaks, like watching Netflix. Terry, on the other hand, just watches Marvel comics, DC comics, and trailers for all the shows coming out. There's more to life than that. It, it, take the break, whatever break you need. It doesn't matter. Just take it. What am I supposed to do, Matt? What am I supposed to do when my husband, that's all he does is take breaks. Well, let's see. Let's look at our options. Uh, Complain. Um, Ignore. Avoid. Mm, Talk about him. Uh, Make him pay for it. Or you could relate. You could talk. You could communicate. Well, I do, but every time I talk to him about it, he gets mad. Okay? That's common. Uh, Every time I have projects that my wife needs done and I don't do them... And then she brings it up like, are you going to do the yard soon? Oh, man. Who I'm usually mad at, by the way, when I get mad at you for bringing up the projects I need to do. I'm really mad at myself, aren't I? I'm mad at me. And yet I, I blame you. It's, it's a neat thing we do. But I'm mad because you're telling me something I know I should be doing. And yet I'm, I'm caught on the wall. 
or I'm watching Netflix on the other side of the wall and I don't even realize I'm no longer trying to get over the wall. I've just now accommodated the wall, made excuses about the wall. (sighs) One of my rules when I teach and work with couples is just do something different. Just do something different. It's if your spouse is going to be mad either way, then maybe just go out and start doing the yard. And he'll come out mad. I guarantee you he'll come out mad. But remember who he's mad at is uh, he's mad at himself. Well, I don't want to make him mad. You're already making him mad by asking him every day. He's already mad when he pulls in the yard and the driveway and he sees that his yard is not as nice as everyone else's grass. It's not cut. It's not green. The yard's a mess. He already feels that way, which might be one of the reasons he gets in the funk. So you, if talking's not working, then just quietly go start working on it. Oh, well, why should I have to work on it? Because it bothers you. Go work on what bothers you. Well, aren't we just enabling him? Well, then nag him and see how that goes. You got to choose somewhere, right? Nag or we're going to work on it. I mean, remember, it's your life too. And if your wall is your husband not getting over his wall, then do something to get over the wall. Right? Adjust. Oh, it's always up to me. It is. Yeah, it is. As long as it's bothering you, it's always up to you. As long as you want to improve it, it's always up to you. As long as you're the one that wants to change, it's always up to you. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you. What do I know? Just one of us. We're all jacked up. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can every day to give us all the tools we need. Not just you. We all need them. I talk from my experience being stuck on the wall. We'll be right back, folks. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, many of us have been uh, put in situations where we are expected to give advice to another person. For many of us, this task can sometimes prove to be more complicated than it seems. You don't want to say the wrong thing for fear of advising someone to do something wrong. And uh, and yet sometimes your advice may not be as accurate as it needs to be. The quest for distinguishing between good and bad advice can sometimes be overwhelming. Professor Jason Dana, assistant professor of management and marketing at Yale University, uh, sat down with us. We did an interview with him um, back in January about how to sort through advice, and and we, we learned a lot from him. We started the interview with this. I basically said, you know, not all advice is neutral. Many times it's biased. Yeah, it's, it's hard to give neutral advice, and, and particularly what we've been looking at lately and what we wrote the article about was uh, why advice differs from choice. And by that I mean why people do one thing for themselves, but then recommend something different when they advise someone else. Interesting. And yeah. w- what are you finding about that? Why, what are you, why would somebody give advice one way but do something another way? Uh, well, we, we have a number of reasons why this is the, the case. Um, you know, maybe be better to start off, or, or good to start off with a kind of a concrete example yeah. that we encountered. Uh, so, uh, a couple years back, some colleagues and I uh, surveyed some obstetricians and gynecologists that are in the American College of Gynecologists, and, and since a lot of OBGYNs are uh, female, we were able to ask them how they advised their patients regarding mammography, 
but we were also able to ask them about their personal practices mm. regarding mammography. And what we found is that they were telling their patients to get mammograms earlier and more often than they themselves were getting them. Interesting. So, so that, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, as someone who studies uh, ethics, it, it interests me because I think most people embrace a principle that's sort of like the golden rule. Right. right? You should do to other people what you, what, as you'd want them to do to you. But when it comes to advice, people are doing one thing and telling people to do something else. So, you know, we have limited uh, ability to follow up with some of these physicians. It's hard to get physician time. But, you know, you think about all the reasons why that might be. Yeah, why like, are they giving? Why advice? are they? Why, why, would I, why would I give advice um, that is kind of the higher standard than I'm living? I guess is it me trying to protect them? Uh, to some degree, right? So, so look, we could say cynically, you might think that in the, in the case of physicians, for instance, that maybe they're just practicing defensive medicine, right? They, don't, they want to prevent lawsuits. Or if you want it to be even more cynical, uh, perhaps you think you know, maybe they're getting compensated for referrals. But let's suppose that, that most physicians are indeed well-intentioned, right? That, right? And in fact, what they want to do is help you and they're just trying to give the best advice they can. Well, there's a lot of less sinister possibilities of why people would, would advise you differently than they choose for themselves. So, you know, maybe, maybe the advice in this case is good, but they're just procrastinating it on following it themselves. You know, so there's that old expression, the cobbler's children go shoeless. Right, exactly. Right? So, so maybe they should be, the, the physicians should be getting them earlier, and they just aren't. Uh, it's also possible that, you know, maybe they strategically exaggerate their advice. So maybe they expect that patients will be a little bit slow to take up their advice. So they push it a little bit earlier and a little bit harder to make sure that it's followed up. Hmm. But what we're finding across a lot of domains, not just medicine, but all, all domains of advice, is that beyond all these factors, people just have a basic psychological tendency to be more cautious for others than they are for themselves. If you want, you could call that a, a paternalistic bias. Hmm. More cautious for others than we are for ourselves. So the financial advisor might be more cautious with someone else's money than with their own. Indeed. Correct. Interesting. Now, is that just good psychology or is that maybe that's good business? Maybe that's how they stay in business is being more cautious with everyone else's money. Yeah, it's both, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the reasons that advice is more cautious than personal choice is indeed this worry about maintaining a relationship or being held accountable for your advice. So it's funny, you know, because we think that advisors ideally should be held accountable for right. the advice that they give right. or that we should want to take advice from someone that we like or that we trust. And this is kind of counterintuitive and perverse, but that can lead to problems. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, really, because there's, you know, so there's a general psychological principle that bad has a stronger impact than good. And this is true, especially in impressions of other people. So, you know, you can expect to be blamed more for bad outcomes that might flow from your advice than you're credited for good outcomes. And if you think of it that way, you know, giving cautious advice can shield you from blame. So you've probably never heard stories about people who are irresponsibly cautious on someone else's behalf. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's true. So look, if you, if you expect to be held accountable or you want to maintain a good relationship, sometimes it's more important to give cautious advice 
than it is to give the best advice. Wow, that's kind of which means we are, that's the quality of our advice is lowered in an effort so. to be cautious and protected. That's correct. I mean, that's kind of unintuitive to some people. Some yeah, right. People think, well, you know, careful advice isn't that good advice? Isn't it better to be safe than sorry? But what we're talking about here is overly cautious advice relative to what I would do as an expert myself. So, so if I told you to invest your retirement in a money market fund, or even worse, I just told you to stuff it in your mattress, well, you wouldn't lose anything. Right. Nothing awful would happen. But you'd miss out on years and years of gains that you'd get from, say, investing your money in an index fund that just tracked the stock market. So in the end, you'd be much worse off if you followed that overly careful advice. So true. Um, is it – and then all of a sudden – and nobody knows. Nobody knows because I didn't lose all your money. You, you feel, I guess, pretty good, but you only got a 3% return instead of a 10% return. But you didn't even know you could get a 10% return. I mean it's yeah. it's a game. It really is – I guess that's the downside of all of us that kind of are living more to protect and are more fearful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You don't generally think about relationship concerns as a conflict of interest. You know, usually when we say an advisor has a conflict of interest, you think about the simple, like they have a financial interest yeah. in getting you to do something. But, you know, um, trying to maintain a good relationship or trying not to be blamed, right, trying not to be held accountable for a bad thing, is that those are goals that are not always compatible with giving the best advice. Right. right? So, so sometimes it's better to be careful than, than, to be, than to give the best advice you can. So, so almost an anonymous advice might be better, one that's not bound by the relationship, you think? In a way, sure. Uh, you know, I, I, it's kind of jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah. But if we think about um, what you could do to get better advice, right? Right. Um, you know, one thing right off is I think you want to you want to take a lot of these accountable accountability pressures off of the advisor, right? You don't want them to feel t- too pressured or too accountable, because then they're not going to want to tell you unfiltered advice, right? They're going to be worried about them giving you advice and it going wrong. Hmm. Yeah. So, so a lot of you know you, you you might solicit advice and say, well, you know. I, Obviously, I, I know this is, you know, I'm going to make my own decision, but I, I just want to know what you think. You sort of take the accountability pressure off of people rather than put it on. Yeah, and I guess as an advisor, you could do the same thing by giving the options. Here are the choices, ramifications for each, but you make the choice. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's actually um, – but, but if, I, if I'm going to seek out an advisor, one of the things you're saying I should do is try to put the accountability pressure on me – not on them. But I, I guess that's kind of – is that not a psychological uh, factor that I, I'd rather someone else be the fall guy? So I, I, might norm, I might more normally put the pressure on my advisors that they're going to, they're going to take the hit, not me. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, that, that's a good way of framing it. And I, I guess you know, I, I can't tell you what you should value more, right? If you really put a value on, well, if it goes wrong, it's not my fault. You know? Right. I can, I, I can blame the advisor. Well, then sure, go ahead and do that, right? But yeah. if, if you just want unfiltered, you know, best advice, good information, 
then then probably you want to take the accountability pressures off. Well, that's good. Uh, let's let's do this, Jason. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at uh, Yale School of Management. We're going to take a break, come back, continue uh, learning some more things we can do that, that might improve, uh, you know, as we're working with an advisor, what can we do to help make sure that the advice we're getting is the best advice, the healthiest advice, good advice. Um, one thing we've learned so far, take accountability pressures off the off of the table. Try to, try to own your own accountability instead of pushing it onto your advisor. Um, interesting stuff, isn't it? We'll take a break. More on uh, making and, and receiving better advice and getting better advice from those around us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting discussion uh, underway here with Dr. Jason Dana, Assistant Professor of Management and Marketing at the Yale School of Management. He's He put together some great research with uh, Dalian Kane, um, and they're talking about why good advice is often bad advice and the difficulty that uh, the, just some of our psychological factors, some of our beliefs, our issues um, they, they come up in just the simple advising that we do, even as a professional advisor. One of the examples that we gave early on was the fact that um, some OBGYNs would recommend um, maybe an annual mammogram. And yet in their own profession, their own life, they actually get mammograms less often than that. So they they tend to give advice that they themselves don't even live and keep. And so uh, that's some of the interesting research that's come out of this. Um, we appreciate, again, Dr. Jason Dana joining us. Thanks for being back with us. Yeah, thank you. You bet. Talk about um, – because one of the things you gave us before the break was some advice about if we can take the accountability pressure off of the advisor, um, then it might free them up to, to be, I guess, a little bit more real or honest in the, in the advice that they're giving. Is that the idea generally? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that, that's, that's one part of the story. Now, there's another part of the story, you know, when it comes to giving and getting good advice that we didn't talk about. And I guess that's just these, uh, like a basic psychological tendency, you can almost call this a cognitive factor, to think differently about risks for other people than you think about them for yourself. Hmm. So uh, I'll explain a little. Uh, my old colleagues at UPenn, Paul Rosen and Ed Roisman, researched something they call simhedonia. And this is a word they made up for the positive emotion you feel at others' good fortune. And I guess what they find across a number of studies is that your sympathy for other people's losses is a much stronger emotion than your pleasure that you feel at other people's gains. And so if you, if, if you have children, think of it this way, right? Like maybe they want to do something that's fun but a little dangerous. Like, yeah. hey, I want to balance up here. And then you say, uh, you know, maybe balance a little lower down there, right? Wouldn't that be... And, and you may be, you know, acutely aware that you're, you're really feeling their pain and you're very worried about their losses and not so much acutely experiencing, you know, how fun it will be. And oh, wow. the difference in the fun. Yeah. Right? And, and so this is just something we do when we think about other people's risks. We, we can't quite 
sympathize with their happiness at gains so strongly as we do sympathize with their pain from losing. And, wow. and, and, you know, and this is so uncommon to our experience. They had to invent a word for it. Yeah, exactly. Hedonia. We don't have a word. <laughs> so when, when you think about other people, you naturally tend to worry about their possible losses more so than you anticipate joy at their gains. And that leads you again to be biased towards advising caution. Interesting. And, and actually and minimizing good feelings, like the joy of something. I see it in my own work with couples that are struggling in their marriages. Um, I, I always I, – I do. I, I want to protect more their pain that they're feeling in the relationship than celebrate the joys that they're having in even a dysfunctional relationship. It's interesting. Wow. Does it – and that's – you're saying just a cognitive kind of factor that each of us – that's just – it's how we kind of value the data. We tend to value the negative data uh, more aggressively and want to fix the negative maybe more than embracing the positive. Yeah. I just don't think we're capable of feeling the sympathetic happiness as much as we are feeling the sympathetic pain. Right? I mean, so you true. see someone get hurt like on, on TV or on – you, you know, sometimes you can actually feel it. Right? Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> you know? Right, right. And, and rarely you get that, that experience with happiness, too, but it's just not as, as potent. Uh-huh. And then we give advice very quickly, like, why are they even doing the show? They look so stupid. But you don't, like, you don't see that person. I, I always see it on American Idol, where <laughs> you see that person just embarrassing themselves, and you're thinking, oh, why are you doing yeah. this? But you, I guess yeah, the other literally has to turn off the volume or uh-huh. the channel sometimes when someone's doing something painful. Exactly, awkward. she can't even look. But, but instead, we should maybe also try to see that this is the this is their fifteen minutes there, and they're loving it. I guess up to the point that they get rejected. This is a high. There's something exciting for them. Yeah. Right. Right. And and so when we're advising as an advisor, we probably ought to make sure we're we're. I guess trying to make sure we're cognitively focusing also on what is their real benefit that they're that they're seeking. Yeah, although again, I think that's a very very difficult thing to accomplish. But yeah. but if you think about this, like another way that you could give and get good advice, other than the accountability pressures we talked about earlier, you know, if I were asking for advice, maybe I should instead of saying what should I do, I might ask what would you do. Oh, yeah. Because then you're not thinking about the risks vicariously anymore. You're thinking about them personally. You're thinking about you, right? And I can combine that with the accountability. I'm like, I understand this isn't, you know, what you'd tell me to do, and I'm going to make my own decision. But what would you do? With my given set of circumstances, what would you do? Is that what you mean? Well, I I might just ask, what would you do? You know, this is interesting. Um, and. why people don't use this kind of thinking when they give advice, but but think about the word majority, right? Uh-huh. By definition, a majority of us are in the majority a majority of the time. Right? <laughs> so, so as a first pass, it's not bad reasoning when you want to think about someone else or what someone else should do to think about yourself and just project that onto someone else. Now, I mean, maybe you have like really good reason to believe in a certain situation that you're quite unusual. <laughs> right, which, which we do think, right? Yeah, but we, 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 we think it too often. Yeah. Old advisor Robin Dawes did a lot of research on this, and, and people who don't project in this way, people who predict that others are different than them, tend to be less socially accurate. 
Mm. Right? Because most of the time you're not so different than other people. So, so as a first pass, I know it's a rough cut, but you know you you might think about yourself and project that when giving advice, and that can help you get over some of these biases of only focusing on the negative and not the positive. Yeah, that's and, and fantastic. Turn, I might ask you, what would you do instead of what should I do? Yeah, and I mean, because like you've even done it here on the show, uh, a lot of times thinking about these in very specific situations gives maybe a different answer of advice than if it's a very general concept. Hmm, interesting, like, yeah. Like like even just like being specific and then ask what would you do what would you do in this situation? It's so specific that you might get, you know, something a little more accurate. Hmm. Yeah, at least you're getting something unfiltered. So yeah. You're getting an independent piece of information, and, and presumably that's what you want when you're asking for advice. Someone's had a personal experience you haven't had, or they have some expertise that you don't have. So, you know, it, you want to get that information from them, and you want to get it without all these filters, right? Right. Without, without cognitive biases and without... Uh, concerns for for being cautious, not to be blamed, and that sort of thing, and that's the best way to get information. Uh, one other thing that you do mention in your article is th- that there are several types of advisors, um, and so I guess when we're approaching somebody that's going to give us advice, whether it's financial or medical advice, is there some background? Is there some researching I should do about them and their position? Does should it matter to me? Um, their credentials or their or how they go about making their decisions is there are there some people that have a better style that might fit me better? Oh, that that's interesting. I don't I don't know I don't know how you'd know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, uh, trying to think about this carefully. Um, you, you know, one one thing I guess I would say that 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 relates to that. Uh, is just not to fall uh, too in love with this idea of really liking your advisor, really feeling compatible, and really placing too much trust in them. So, so one really interesting study by Schwartz, Luce, and Ariely, they, they studied people, uh, they, they tracked people's dental decisions. And people that had been with their dentist the longest actually made more costly and worse medical choices, treatment choices. And the reason being is they don't want to get a second opinion because they they feel like, well, that means I don't trust you or, you know, I'm going to hurt the relationship. So I I don't want to seek a second piece of advice. Interesting. Yeah, no, I've seen that. People, you become so close to them that they feel, you know, if they went to another therapist, if they went to another dentist, that they're like hurting their friendship. Right. And and so then you're bound, right? Yeah. And bound maybe to get bad or more costly dental advice. Yeah. Interesting. So that that is I guess why two opinions might be better than one. Right. right. I mean this is this is one case where you kind of want to reverse everything we've been talking about. You know, if you were considering whether you should get a second opinion, I might then think, what would you tell someone else, right? Mm. That that might be a time to take the outside view. Well, if it was me, would you tell me to get a second opinion? Such <laughs> a great question. Too, right? I mean, a lot of this is, I guess, understanding that there's more going on. There's a psychological side to this, a cognitive side. There's just behavioral theories and histories going on with all of this. There's habits. There's relationships. All of this is compounding in the advice and the advisor or the advice recipient and the advisor role. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and a, a less psychologically informed view, you know, would say that if someone's giving you biased advice, right, then they just don't have your best interest right. at heart, right? Like maybe they have a financial conflict of interest. So it's kind of like if you don't trust someone's advice or something, it's almost like you're inferring that they're, they're not ethical or they're not good. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about is is how even good people could give bad advice, right? We're talking about how someone who's well-intentioned, who does care about you, could still end up giving bad advice. And when you think of it that way, right, then seeking a second opinion or wondering whether advice is good is not the same thing as saying, well, that person's, you know, doesn't care or is not trying to give me good advice, right? This is an understanding that we're all prone to doing this. Yeah. And that that's that's really important too. Just in advising your own children, I mean, you know what I mean. Because a lot of our advice for our children is very biased too. And we love them, and we want what's best for them, but it's also sometimes out of fear. You know, we don't yeah. want them to feel pain. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the that's the perfect example of of caring for. I mean, you know, there's not someone for whom you will feel more agency, for whom you will ever try to make the best decisions and give the best advice. But even with children, right, these biases come into play. Yeah. Oh, this is good stuff. Man, where have you been all my life, Jason? This is great. And this we got to get this information out there because it really is. It's not – we're not saying people are mean and they're trying to mislead you. I mean there are a few of those, but the majority are just good people that don't know what they don't know. Exactly. And this is this is a, an approach that I bring into ethics and other people that are doing what we call behavioral ethics do now. Mm. You know, traditionally, you would you would try to uh, sort out what's right from wrong and teach people what's good and what's bad. And these days we're looking more at what you call ordinary unethical behavior. Why even good people can sometimes do bad things. Yeah. Basically, why we all fail to live up sometimes to our own moral standards. Oh. That's huge. And, and again, that's everybody, right? I mean, that's everybody. Everybody. Right? Not the extremes anymore. It's just the common folk now. Right. When we talk about these extreme examples, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's not relevant to me. But I think it's relevant. I think everyone real recognizes that sometimes we're, we're not as good as we want to be. Yeah. We're not as good as we would ideally be. So that's kind of more relevant in all of our lives, understanding the psychology behind why we fail to do what we want to do. Mm. You know, I got to have you back, Jason, because I want to talk more about the ordinary unethical behavior. I'm sure you've got a whole class on that. So um, we'll have to get you back when you're free again down the road. Sure. Anytime. This was a lot of fun. Fun for us, too. Jason Dana, Dr. Jason Dana from uh, Yale School of Management. Appreciate you so much. Um, Wow. That's cool stuff. Again, and we're everyone's giving advice all the time, and yet we don't see our own bias. We don't see our own um, fears, our relationship issues that come into play on all of that. We'll take a break, come back, do a quick little coach's corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, after that great interview with Jason Dana, I probably I just feel like I need to give you some advice. It's going to be good advice, of course. So 
you ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, Check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got got to – anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them. Do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads to so the hospital. good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got, you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay, it also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. 
one way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. <laughs> so don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really... Did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day. At a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably. Some clam and linguine meal. Mmm. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has... Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No. No. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree... Has says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter... Something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah, Milk all the money you can. <laughs> she may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know? Hey, I found some hair. That's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make, make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. Anyway, we'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the show. Stick with us. One more hour of fun intrigue right here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. What impact are all these judges having on us? None of you are, you know, really impacted by a judge, are you? Yeah, we all are. And not just at the Supreme Court level. I mean, just the decision uh, of uh, gay marriage. That Just remember the impact that that had on your community, on discussions in your community. You know, a decision, it's, it does get the, dis- the conversations going, right? It gets us talking. And, um, and, and I think there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in being able to discuss stuff. In fact, I'm convinced... If we could communicate better, we wouldn't be as impacted by 
the justices. One of the things I've been learning a lot about the Supreme Court is they really are a very unified body in that they have a rule, for example, that when they hear um, – and this is when they're in chambers, not in front of everybody. But when they, when they go through and, make, and have discussions about certain issues, they have a rule that everybody at the table has to answer and give their opinion about the issue before anyone can give a second opinion. So nobody can have two comments until everybody's had one comment, which is a really cool principle. And I think the, their ability to maybe think through it, uh, to talk without necessarily having to react to everything, um, it's, I, I think if we could understand how they do it behind the scenes, we might value some of their decisions more. I get, too, that you have your issues and everyone has their position, but, but uh, there's also something to see there. And I saw a story that I wanted to bring to all of our attention about a judge in Georgia, in Bibb County, Georgia, um, Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. There's a viral video out with, her, with Verda Colvin um, discussing the consequences with some wayward kids. They, they were in a program. She was a, she's in her robes. They're in the courtroom, and she has two sides of the courtroom. The girls are on one side. Young men are on the other side. Uh, Judge Verda Colvin is an is a African-American female, and she's talking to a room predominantly of African-Americans. And um, it was, I think, one of the most beautiful seats, I think, of, of a judge— and the power of a judge as she's arguing and making an argument in front of these kids that are in trouble. They're, you know, they're in one of those programs that they're trying to get them some reality. And let me just play a few of, um, of her points. One of the first things she's telling them is you're going to have a choice here. You're, you're either going to end up in court or, or a body bag. You can have the ultimate experience. You can be in this body bag. And the only way somebody will know you're in here is by this tag that'll have your name on it. What do you want to do? That's the question you have to ask yourself. What do you want to do? What? That's what you might want to start doing. Because listen to me. The way you're going, you will go to jail. Or you will end up in this body bag. Mm. She also uh, is is pleading with them to be something. You're special. You're uniquely made. Stop acting like you're trash and putting pictures of yourself on the internet. Stop being disrespectful to your parents. Care about your future. Be somebody. Anybody can be nothing. It doesn't take anything to be nothing. Be something. Do you understand what I'm saying? care about yourselves. The fact that you're shedding tears means you want to be better and you want to do better. Do it. The only person stopping you is you. Do better than what you've been doing. Do you understand me? Mm. Don't you love that? This is this is a civil servant helping you parents raise your kids, helping all of us. I mean, think about it. If you had a child that was wayward and struggling, wouldn't you love a judge like Superior Judge, uh, Court Judge Verda Colvin, telling your kids this. Um, another thing she says is don't let your school or don't let your family become an excuse. 
But you're going to have to make a decision that you're going to do something different. And don't use your family situation as an excuse. You hear me? Don't use that as an excuse. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know where you live, but don't use it as an excuse. Anything either of you all are going through, somebody else went through it who's successful now. Hmm. Last but not least, she's going to help all of us remember that we're special. Nobody else can do what you're supposed to do in this world. Nobody else. And if you don't do it, we won't have it. I, I continue to believe one reason why our society is so messed up, because some people who were supposed were born to do certain things just dropped the ball. They didn't do it. And so for every person who didn't do what they needed to do because they were given unique gifts and talents, we're missing something as a society. An eight-minute speech by Bibb County Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. We're special. You've got to deliver something. If you don't deliver it, guess what? Nobody does. We don't get it. And kids, you have a choice. Court, at this rate, you're going to be in court and jail or you're going to be in a body bag. I love it. I guess that's judicial activism. Yeah, everybody needs to hear it. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you know, you think about it, it's just easy to say, well, you know, if these people would just, uh, you know, save their money, they wouldn't get in this trouble and then they wouldn't have kids that have behavior problems. Oh, great. Easy for you to say. Again, most of us, I don't feel, truly get what it feels like to... um, to be completely underwater financially, you know, where you've got four lives hanging on your paycheck and it's already 30, 40 percent below what you need. So let's be careful not to judge. Let's be careful not to not to just quickly critique and assume that this is just simply because people love to spend money and they don't have self-discipline. There are a lot of heroes that I think if we could go and look at, you know, maybe the average worker at a fast food restaurant, a mother with a couple children at home trying to make a living. And again, you may not like these minimum uh, uh, minimum wage options that are being proposed out there. And again, I'm a business owner, too. I'm not a, I don't love being told exactly how much I have to pay somebody. When I have to have the discussion with my son to come vacuum my office and um, he asks me, how much will you pay me? And I tell him minimum wage and he's like, yeah, no, not doing that. I won't. I won't work for that. And I'm like, you're 14, boy. <laughs> this was a few years ago. You're 14. Well, I can get 10, you know, working on a food truck. No, you can't. Well, yeah, I can. Well, he got his job. He got a job this summer. And uh, he's going to wash cars for just a, under minimum wage but some tips. Went to his first day of school or of, of work. Came home that night. How'd it go, son? Yeah, I want a new job. It's interesting. Work is hard. But uh, be grateful for what you do have, right? You if you have the blessing or the benefit now to actually be ahead financially or just breaking even financially, it's a huge benefit to you that you may not even understand. People that have money live longer. Well, duh, because they can just sit at the beach. and Maybe. 
But some of it's simply because when you have money, you live in a different location. You live in a healthier place. Data has existed uh, from the American Medical Association talking about the fact that simply where you choose to live in the country will determine your life expectancy too. Right? This is this is the diet you're going to end up participating in. This is the the friends your kids are going to have. Smoking, drugs, alcohol, all of those things decline when you have more income, interestingly. Would you believe that? According to a study in 2010, uh, in the Annual Review of Sociology, poorer people are more likely to smoke and drink in excess, which are both potential causes of dying younger. So there's a lot of this that's tied to your income. Exercise. People with more money are more likely to exercise. Well, sure, they got the time. That's totally true. The exercise, a lot of the the um, poorer people might get is running to the bus that then has to drive them for two hours to their job. That's their exercise. They sit more time probably on mass transit trying to get to their home that's affordable. And wealthier people have the luxury maybe of just getting in a car or taking a shorter ride to their home. They're able to live maybe closer to work. Statistically, uh, uh, wealthier people are more educated, which decreases uh, or increases your your revenues, your incomes. There's a ton of benefits to it. And wealthier people have more access to health care. And when we now find out that your debt and your debt load impact your child's behavior, kids whose parents have unsecured debt, who are constantly trying to get the credit card bills paid, who are going to payday loans, those their kids are going to struggle. Which came first, the kid or the payday loan? I would apparently argue it's the debt. And there's a million reasons why people are in debt. Remember that. We are so quick to judge and we can't just judge. If we want to create a healthier community, then let's go fight for better rules, better laws to manage what people can charge as interest. I mean, I guess it's beautiful to just have capitalism, but there's a cost to capitalism that we are now maybe learning and some of the costs to some forms of capitalism or at least just extreme money-making mentalities is simply it might be impacting our health and our and our behavior of our children. I mean, let's just look at it. You don't have to love it, but we can start to figure out why some people just can't seem to get out of this hole instead of having an immediate reaction that, oh, they're just not trying hard enough. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is we're on the cutting edge of some really pretty amazing uh, tools. And again, I'm a big believer that many of us need therapy, I guess, but maybe more of us just need information. We need the tools. We need education. And that's not always easy to get. Um, So one of the things, no matter what you're doing, there are a ton of resources online to manage depression. And pretty much everywhere you go, you're going to be able to either get medicine. I mean, that's the easiest thing really nowadays to get are some meds to deal with depression. But 
invariably, anytime you're on the meds, you should also be taking classes, skills, so you can build the skills to manage your depression as well. I'd also talk to anybody you go to about the ability to uh, learn how to do other things so we can eventually come off medicine. Um, sometimes medicine might be a, a pretty quick way to fix a problem quickly if it's if it's pretty serious. But I'm also a big believer, let's, let's get off the meds if we can. And if we can't, let's minimize some of the, the use of the meds if we can as well. So remember, there's resources out there, but every one of us are going to be battling something. And if it's not you, it will be your spouse, or it will be your children, or it will be your son-in-law, or your daughter-in-law, or your grandchildren. We've all got to learn a little bit more about mental health. That's one of the big issues we're seeing just simply with some of the tragedies that have happened that uh, the German wings crash, you know, mental health is something that we have to be able to talk about. And we, we can't keep the stigma going uh, for mental health. It's, it truly is in our churches, in our neighborhoods. It needs to be something we can mention and, un- and understand without the judgment. I mentioned earlier that I, I had a client whose spouse just thought it was just pure weakness. You know, anybody with character can just dig down and hammer through a little depression. <sighs> no, that's great. Until you have it, right? Until you have it. Until you lose your job and then you're feeling some situational depression and you feel like a failure. So figure it out for yourself. If you also know that you have some issue going on, attention deficit, whatever, anxieties, depressions, mood disorders – Please go start uh, gathering the data and the information you need. Once you're less ignorant, then we start to build a plan about it. How is how is this impacting me? How is it impacting my family? And usually you'll never find a perfect fit, right? There's not going to be this one piece of the puzzle that perfectly fits in and fixes uh, that that you know that vessel. So what we need is maybe a mix of five or six or ten different plans in order to create a customized piece. The problem is, is I can't customize the piece for you. No one can, because eventually you're the only one that's going to be reading your emotions. You're the one that has to figure out what you are feeling and how how it's impacting you. So the sooner we get on this, the better. And one reason I would seriously attack uh, your mental health issues, because those are issues that are going to be handed down. Because the generations before us didn't talk about mental health as much as our current generations are, we didn't know that we had a ticking time bomb inside of us. We didn't know that we had this depression. We didn't know that we had anxiety that kept us away from doing things that were social or whatever. We didn't know we had this. But you do. And if you now know it, you can actually start, I firmly believe, to educate and to inform yourself, to figure out your diet, your sleep, to figure out the whole code so that it impacts you less. Then you can teach your children how to do the same thing. This is where the traditions of the fathers can be handed down in a positive way. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. It's out there, and you're part of it. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, sometimes you just need a good cry. 
Other times you're just mad. Your emotions take so many different, uh, you know, pathways to get through your body and out of your body. But your emotions are teaching you something. They're telling you something. Whether it's whether it's crying and uh, you know your need to cry every once in a while and get those feelings out, or just dealing with your fears, dealing with uh, what's going on inside of you, we wanted to bring in an expert that could help all of us to better uh, manage and look at our emotions. Um, Aleka Torvalson is joining us. She is um, a, a, a contributor to the Huffington Post and a professionally certified and credentialed life strategies coach. And uh, she is helping us to understand our emotions. Aleka, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to being here. You bet. Great to have you. And I mean, emotions—they're—they're they're there for a reason, right? They're—they're—they're they're, they're a guide. They're—they're they're teaching us how to handle ourselves, aren't they? Yeah. You know, it's funny because we have these things called feelings all the time. <laughs> Don't make day, me think day. about it. Yeah. Yeah, and we we do, and so. But what are they, you know, these things that we call feelings, and do they actually have a purpose? And when I ask uh, my clients or groups or certainly myself, you know, way many years ago, I, I knew I had feelings. I could name the feelings, but I didn't quite know what to do with them. Yeah. You know, and so I think many of us may not have a clear sense of maybe what we're feeling, but if we've gotten that far... Um, how how we deal with these feelings and how these feelings can actually be really useful, even those so-called, and I'm using air quotes, bad feelings like shame, jealousy, anger, anxiety, even boredom, you know, those those negative feelings, those too can actually be useful. Well, and, and I guess that's the key is we might think that uh, we don't want to deal with the feelings. Some of us actually not me, but some think that they that feelings don't matter. They can actually cut them out of their life, but you can't, right? Because feelings are so deeply connected to your thinking. It's true. Conscious I mean, or I, subconscious, right? It, absolutely. And I think you, you could. I like to say, you know, you, you can make that choice to sort sure. of live in that logical mind, but you would be living with half your compass. You know, it's, it's not necessarily to your benefit because the feelings give us really important information about our life, if we're living without that sense, then we're sort of living uh, with, with half our, our, our direction. Hmm. And, yeah. And, yeah. So, and you, so, yeah, you'd have half of the experience of life. Yeah. And so it's really important to ask ourselves the why, you know, why perhaps we have feelings. And there's many, many, um, you know, theories about where they come from and what they are. But for me, you know, in working with my clients and perhaps myself, I like to think about what are the gift of feelings? How can we use them? Hmm. What are they here to tell us? And I think they're really here to give us very um, important information. I like to think of feelings as the barometers of our inner weather. You, you know, much like we have our, our physical senses can kind of tell us information about our external environment, feelings give us really important information about our inner world our psyche, and as you said, our conscious and subconscious mind, our thinking, even our past, hmm. present, and future. Is, because um, I'm assuming some of our feelings, we may not actually have a direct thought like in our consciousness, but we can still have a feeling. Like you might wake up, it seems like, like I've walked into a room before mm -hmm. and felt like something's weird. <laughs> and I don't even know, I just feel it, something strange. 
and I don't – but it's not connected to a thought yet. So I guess there's pre-conscious feelings, right? And and then is it – does the feeling proceed? Then I make up the thought about it? Right. Or – Or the egg. Or is yeah. it the other way around? Yeah. It's a good question and one that experts are really trying to wrestle with. I don't think anyone has a clear direction um, or decisive theory about what it is. The, the latest research that I've really studied has been you actually do have a thought, even though it's subconscious, mm. which creates the feeling. Because you even said in your example, there's something that feels weird. Here. Yeah. You know, and then you have the feeling. And sometimes it happens, though, you know, that stimulus and response happens so quickly that we're not able to differentiate that we had a thought. We just understand we had a thought by the feeling. Yeah. You know, is, so sometimes it's a really great way to ask ourselves, what was, what was I thinking right before I had that thought? I mean, and the feelings. So I had that feeling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's, I guess, the benefit of being a human being is you could sit down after you've been through an, an episode or something that really stirred up your feelings and, and start asking yourself questions about what was going on there. What was I thinking? How long mm-hmm. have I felt that way? Absolutely. You know, and, and the other thing that feelings can do is they can help us in the moment. You know, for example, if you can kind of for a moment, you know, track how these feelings feel in your body, like anger, anger, the feeling of anger feels very different in your body than, like, say, sadness. Mm. You know, for me, when I feel anger, I feel it in my chest. You know, it's like it feels warm. And I'm, as I'm sitting in my chair now, I'm sitting up straighter. You know, and I, I feel that my energy wants to move out, whereas sadness, you feel it more, at least I do, you know, if you can feel it within yourself. Everyone is unique. It, but I feel it more in my solar plexus, hmm. and it makes me feel almost cold, and I, I feel myself kind of wanting to curl up. Yeah. You know, and so anger is telling us a few different things. If we could say, what is the gift of anger? So when we feel angry, that inner sentry or that inner warrior has been awakened, and it says boundaries. Someone has violated a boundary, or we need to set a boundary, or maybe someone has called us on something, and they're right, and there's an inner boundary that we have that needs to be attended to. Mm. So, right? that, so that is the, that's why it's a gift. It angers. Yeah. It's not just trying to beat you down. It is no. trying to help you, protect you. Absolutely. I mean, think of those times that uh, one of the things I often say is the gift of anger is clarity. You know, because if you're in high anger, right, and we can talk about what that means, high anger versus low anger. If you're in high anger, you're actually very clear. Mm. You know, like I'm holding up my finger saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, no Mm. more, you know. Yeah. Um, And that then, if you think about kind of how energy, the energy of anger feels, we have the energy. We have the voice. We have the assertion. We feel like we need to say something. Yeah. Whereas sadness tells us the gift of sadness is release and letting go. And it says you're needing to let go of something to make room for something else. You know, And um, when we feel that, when we can name what it is we're releasing, it helps us move through and how to use that feeling. Because one of the things about feelings is once you're able to use it and get the wisdom it's giving you, it can diminish and go away. Mm-hmm. Right? It's giving you the answer. It's giving you the, that nugget of truth. And then you can actually take that energy and move forward, energy in motion. Right? Use it to make a change. And then um, that, that message has been gifted to you so it can travel on. 
Wow. And that's, I mean, that's a whole different way, like seeing all of these emotions. So I guess every emotion then brings some gift to us, some Absolutely. opportunity. Yeah. Wow. Let's let's take a break. I want to come back. What are some more sure. what are some more gifts of the emotions? Some more we could talk about um certainly some some of the other gifts perhaps fear. Yeah. And that would that's a big one. Okay, let's let's do that. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion. Folks, this is I mean this is your this is your body communicating to you and giving you an opportunity to uh to change, to take advantage of life and uh and move on. We'll come back. More with Alika Torvalson in just a minute, folks. Stick with us. Well, this is the Matt Townsend Show. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you, whether you feel fear or angry, sadness, these emotions, these feelings, totally normal, folks. And uh, you can avoid them if you want to, or you can let them be your guide, your teacher. And Alika Torvalson is joining us. She is a, uh, a Huffington Post contributor and a professionally certified uh, life strategies coach and um, also has a website. If you go to alikasky.com, AlikaSky.com. You can find out more about the great work that she's doing there. Alika, welcome back to the show. Thank you. This is a uh, th- this topic is I love the idea of framing it as a gift because mm-hmm. if it's a negative feeling, a lot of us avoid it. We want to run from it. But you're saying no. Learn the lesson and see the gift that it'll bring to you. For example, the gift of anger brings clarity. Of, of information and emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also then talked about the gift of sadness is the gift to let something go. Yeah, absolutely. And remembering that every ending is a beginning, hmm. you know, and, and that's, um, that, that's a great thing to remember because those are those feelings that don't always feel so good. Yeah. You know, and because we're, we, we tend to, you know, we, we, we get pretty good at blocking them, um, numbing them, ignoring them, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. doing other things, so we don't or shaming them, so we don't feel them. And really, when we're at, when we are able to do that, we really turn up the volume on our whole lives in a really important way. It's we do. We spend a lot of time. In fact, a lot of the problems of this country in health um, mm-hmm. and and even just in social issues tends to be people trying to avoid these feelings, mask these feelings, medicate themselves for these feelings. You know, it's it really mm-hmm. instead of just letting them in and letting them teach. Yeah, you know, and I think you know I, I understand that because we're we can live in kind of a left brain culture. You know, where our our logical mind is an awesome thing. I don't want to diminish that. Um, I think that that logical part of us gives us incredibly helpful and useful information. It's great at analyzing data and organizing and doing our taxes, and we all need to drive on the, on the correct sides of the, the street, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we need that structure and order. But our, our logical mind only can answer certain questions. And questions that I get in my practice, and certainly ones that I have, around love and purpose and healing and, you know, mysticism and, and inspiration and, and spirituality, these are not linear logical concepts. 
Mm-hmm. So we have to utilize another layer of ourselves, perhaps rather than the head. Maybe we have to drop into the heart. So rather than logic or reason, uh, we need to access intuition, feeling, right? Yeah. And, and that is that important piece. So our, I like to say our EQ, our emotional intelligence, is just as important, maybe depending on the question, more important than our logical mind yeah. because it answers questions our logical mind can't. Is, um, and so much of this is kind of our wiring, right? So you have to understand this to understand yourself or you can't, I would assume, believe to reach a higher level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, kind of going into this unknown terrain of what does that feeling mean is really important to, to really understanding our whole selves. Yeah. You know, all those parts of us, the, the parts that are really conscious and easy to see, and maybe those, those parts of us that we might have shadowed or edited in some way. Hmm. What, what yeah. would you say is the gift behind fear? Yeah, that's a big one, right? Because yeah. I, <laughs> none of us like to be un, have that space of uncertainty in our lives. You know, that, that's, a, that's a scary place to be. And when we talk about fear, we could do a whole segment on just fear alone because there's many layers to that. We're not necessarily talking about that instinctive survival fear that shows up out of the blue. Mm-hmm. The, the, that is to keep you safe. In fact, all fear is wired into that part of our brain that's deeply, deeply um, in that reptilian part of us that says, keep the organism alive, mm. keep, this, you know, keep this person um, well. And because of that, the, our fear tends to want to keep us safe. This is the thing, though. When we're talking about not a survival kind of situation, maybe we're talking about wanting to give a speech or get that promotion or do something that's out of our comfort zone, we're going to feel afraid. You know, so I like to think that fear is just that little reminder that we're, we're stepping over or moving into a new phase of our comfort zone. We're expanding into a new place. Hmm. So for me, when I feel fear, and for my clients, we really talk about, could you feel the fear and then kind of look at the story that's coming up around that? Because usually once we get to the, um, the edge of our comfort zone, the fear loves to be sort of partnered with the inner critic, you know, that tells us, no, you can't do that. You're no good at that. That won't make you any money. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So fear, when we, we start working with our fear, we can start saying, oh, all that it's doing is telling me that, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this or I can't do this. But I actually want to take this step and move into this new terrain. Yeah. So it's, feeling that fear and doing it anyway, you know, it's yeah. sort of an old saying. But I think it's really important to work with our fear because if we're going to do anything as far as growing and evolving, we need to get up close and personal with fear. And if, yeah, if you could, if you could understand that this may be a stepping stone to, you know, my self-limiting beliefs or whatever, yeah. then all of a sudden, you know, take on that fear and you've, you've just expanded your comfort zone. Exactly. Maybe there's actually nothing really to fear except being in that same place. That's interesting. That's great. Yeah. We got about so a minute it's left. It's thing to work with. Uh, Alika, talk to us just in, in a minute. What would you say is the one thing we could all remember if we would just keep this idea top of mind it's, it really is one of the greatest, great tools to help us manage our emotions and understand our emotions. Sure. The only, the only other little piece I might offer is that 
you know, we talked in the beginning here about sometimes our feelings can give us information about the past. Yeah. And working with our feelings, one thing I often want to tell people is make sure that in work with identifying, is that feeling you're feeling actually about right now? Mm. Or is this something that's triggered sort of this, you know, luggage perhaps or bag of emotions that you've been carrying up until now? For example, you know, if you're driving down the street and someone cuts you off and you're a little bit annoyed and you're angry, okay, some anger, some clarity saying someone has violated a boundary, it's, it's it's a bummer, you know? Yeah. But if you're driving down the street and someone cuts you off and all of a sudden you feel enraged, perhaps that there's anger there that's about a boundary that you needed to set 10 years ago. Yeah, no, you know, totally. Or part of you that is being triggered in that moment. So a lot of times working with feelings, one of the things we want to do is make sure, what is this feeling really about? Is it about now? You know, if you're mad at your husband for coming home late and you're irate, is it about now or the times that you were abandoned years ago? Yeah, that is so big. Right, exactly. So that's that's the one thing I will say. So working with feelings, they're always real, but they're not always true to the moment. We have to decipher that. Mm, That's huge information. Well, we appreciated that, Alika. Incredible uh, insight there. And we, we, if anybody, if you want to go find out more about Alika, her coaching, and her great work, go to her website, uh, alikasky.com, A-L-E-K-A-Sky.com. Uh, and her name is Alika Torvalson. We appreciate you, and thank you for the great insight. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. This morning we're talking about failure. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just blown it? Like majorly just blown it. Ah, oh, the embarrassment, the shame. Just the the blow to your game and to your mindset. But the reality of failure, uh, it's everywhere. We all experience it, and uh, to some degree, you need to experience it if you want to be able to progress and to move on in life. Um, one of the reasons why we bring it up is because uh, we seem to be raising a generation of people that, that think that you know we ought not let our kids fail too much. The the problem with that is that's not natural. You're supposed to fail. In fact, quite honestly, you better fail, right? Because failure would mean change. Failure means growth. Failure means it's time to figure something out. Wouldn't you need to have failure to actually know what success is? How many times have you seen uh, one of your children maybe had a really great team, an incredible baseball team or whatever, and they just kept winning and winning and winning and winning and winning. And then, you know, they get to a tournament and they get killed. And (laughs) these kids are not used to failure. But failure happens every single day. Uh, Think about the first time you played a sport and it was your chance to win the game on the free throw line. Did that ever happen? Ben, for example, in his dating life, Nothing but failure, right, Ben? Oh, you have no idea. No idea right, no idea wrong. So, yeah, my dating life's horrible. Really? Let's talk about it just for a minute. What? 
Yeah, right? You're breathing through your mouth again. Oh, sorry. So a little failure. I mean, you're not failing dramatically, right? It's just a little failure. Three restraining orders. It's totally fine. Okay, yeah. That's failure. That's – boy. Really? I'm just trying to be nice, you know. Is, the th- are the, is that three different people? Um, or is that one person, no, you know, it's three been, different it's orders? No, it's been renewed. Okay, so wow. So one of them has been renewed one time and then there's a separate one. Yeah, a second yeah. one. Huh. We got to – yeah, that's weird. Maybe you're pushing too hard. Seems like really? you're pushing too hard. I, I just thought like confidence was supposed to. <laughs> Is that what you do? You act confident, so yeah. confident that you scare them? I guess so. Yeah. Like, See, again, that's a perfect example, Ben. That's why we need failure. You know, the failure to be able to, you know, get a date should teach us something. And there are steps that we need, we should take. To help us get through this, there are actual steps that we should learn to make sure that we're not, you know, always just failing. Four Keys to Learning from Failure by Dr. Guy Winch, who's been on the program two or three times. He uh, He's a blogger on Psychology Today and um, also uh, has this post that made it to Huffington Post, which is four keys to learning from your failure. Now, Ben, I want you to listen up because we're going to use your dating examples as we go through this. Um, And also just, you know, the, the police interventions, the tasing, the stuff like that as, as a tool to help us through this. Uh, First key that Dr. Winch teaches us in his article, because failure is inherent, right? But there's usually going to be a breakdown that would cause a failure in, in a few areas. So the first area is your planning, right? So if you haven't, if you don't plan, if you don't prepare to plan, you no, know, if you fail to prepare, then prepare to fail. That's the axiom. But I, I do plan. Okay. So obviously, let's evaluate your planning. So for these dates that you – like you keep coming in and saying, I went – I had another date and she didn't show. Had another date and she didn't show. Had another date and she didn't show. So you must not be planning very well. Well, I tell her specifically, drive yourself to Moab and I will meet you there. Moab, which is hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Yeah, but like she she okay. could probably find her way. Well, yeah, but did you even – does she even know you at this point? Um. I mean, we sat next to each other a couple times in class. Okay, yeah. See, you, you have to evaluate your planning because it's A, you have to actually know the woman before she'll go to Moab with you. Okay. B, you usually don't like set up a date that's hundreds of miles away unless you really know each other. And so it usually would be better to pick her up, say, hey, let's drive together. Got a bunch of friends that will be down there. We can hang out. There will okay. be a place for the ladies and a place for the gentlemen. What what happens if you don't have a lot of friends that are going to be there? Then we probably ought not be going to Moab with a lady. See, that's where you're losing it. So if we reevaluate your planning, then any breakdown, you know, so for the team that didn't win the championship and they were all a little messed up because, boy, that defense that they faced in the championship game blew them away, then we probably didn't plan very well to have our kids ready for any defense. Right? Okay. So it's about a planning problem. So, And we, we are seeing that that's what's happening to your dating. There's just a failure to plan. 
So planning, I'm going to mark that there. Yeah, planning. You have to spend more time thinking about who this person is. She has to actually know you. You probably ought to be on three or four dates before you take her to Moab. Okay. So how how does she get to know me then? Okay, that would be that would be different. That would be your ex that would be your um your execution. So is that step number two? That would be three. Then oh. so so once you have to you have you reevaluate your planning, did we plan ahead? Then your preparation. Like did you did you date her enough? Did you have your head wrapped around this strongly enough? Were you in the right place? Do you have the communication skills? Do you have the ability to carry a conversation with somebody longer than, you know, 10 minutes? Because if you're going to Moab, it's going to be a long time together. So failure is your inability to be prepared enough. Do you know who she is? Do you know what ladies like to talk about? Do you know what this lady specifically likes to talk about? Yeah. You didn't prepare. Well, I I usually have like – a, like a list of things I can talk about on the car, right? Well, I guess if we're taking separate cars, I would never be able to use those. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, and you don't even have a car. True. So preparation would say that that plan's not going to work. The minute you're like, okay, which car should I take? You don't have a car. So if I buy if I buy a car, I should be good on the preparation side. Right. What would happen if it started raining in Moab? And you found out that there's going to be storms there all weekend. Do you have another plan? You need another. So you got to be prepared because what happens if you guys, you know, what happens if she does have you arrested? Can you post I'm, I'm bail? I'm very prepared on that front, though, on the arrested side. I, I know what to do for that. So what, what our good expert is teaching us is, Dr. Guy Winch, is that if you have a plan, then you got to make sure you're prepared to implement the plan. Right, you got to be able to deliver on the goods. You got to be able to do what needs to be done. So again, the basketball team do we do we have a do we have a plan? Our own game plan. Have I prepared my kids for what could be inevitably changes to the plan? Have we prepared them with other schemes? Have we prepared them? You know, are they in good enough shape? Are they mentally prepared? Do we have all that done? The next tool he teaches is your execution. So it's not enough to just have a really good plan and to have people prepared. Did they execute on what we said we were going to do? And see, if you don't, after the date, go back and learn this, Ben, then you're just going to keep having the same dates over and over. Is yeah. that what you're noticing? Yeah. I, so I, I like plan out what I'm going to say and like how I'm going to ask her out. But a lot of times it turns into German. And so I start talking to ger- – Okay. Talking ger- no, so that's huge. Maybe, yeah, your execution's off. Maybe that's why she doesn't come because I tell her mm-hmm. to meet me in Moab yeah. in German. Well, in fact, you got to watch out for that because Donald's Trump, Donald Trump's people are now saying that Cruz is using Gestapo-type techniques. What does Gestapo mean in German? I don't know. Look that up. But you're probably not executing because when you get nervous, you probably go all German on her. That's that's probably true. That makes sense. And I mean, it's like it's not a bad thing to be German on her. But no, like, she, if she's she German. No, but if yeah. she's not German, it's okay. a bad thing. So speak in English. I, I've planned in English. Mm-hmm. You've prepared. In, okay. Yeah, we were going to do this whole thing in English. Then the next thing you know, you went off all German on her. Nothing wrong with German. 
fantastic thing. But you got to you got to do better. And then last but not least, of course, after you've evaluated your execution of it, is uh, you got to figure out what of everything we talked about you can control. And you can control your German. You can control your prep. You can control how much you know her. You can control these things. And then focus on what you can change, right? Focus on your variables that you can control. It's an easy plan. It's easy. Four keys to learning from your failure by Dr. Guy Winch. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that just is such a human trait, okay, is we tend to oversimplify, right? We've got to just, you know, keep it clean, keep it simple. But we also tend to, um, we tend to, I guess, uh, objectify. We tend to use things for our advantage. And many would say, well, it's just a B for heaven's sakes. But here's the deal that he told us on the way out. Um, a lot of companies, and we've talked about GMO foods recently, uh, genetically modified foods. Well, they're, they're also trying to kind of – some companies are trying to create kind of the super mega bee, the bee that can take and get rid of – you know that, that doesn't fall to the American foul brood disease or this bee that's stronger in this category. And they kind of create this, this mega bee that genetically is um, – powerful and strong and then they mass breed it and then I'll or mass yeah breed it and then they mass take mass hives with a lot of bees that pretty much have the exact same genetic makeup right and they're doing this so that we can go in and like really maximize our crops and our usage and then a new bacteria or a new disease comes along and because there's no genetic differences between this entire you know millions of bees they might fall prey to a disease, and as an entire population, the entire population drops. They all die together because we're mixing and we're messing. We're trying to create the uber super. And it teaches me a really cool lesson just, I guess, about humanity. Maybe we don't need more uber, you know, super mega perfect, amazing breeds. Maybe what we need is just the average bee with an average genetic makeup that does their job incredibly well. And this is the same as humans. Maybe we don't need to go be the uber-perfect person and try to breed an uber-perfect company that has everybody exactly doing everything exactly. Maybe what we need to do is just actually let people be people, let bees be bees, understand what they need, take care of their needs. Don't just use them and ship them and truck them around, work on our pesticides so we understand the impact, start looking at our systems in our lives as a whole instead of just, you know, a bunch of parts. There's one big whole and we're all somehow connected and you can't impact one without impacting another. You can't put the bees in the truck, you know, to go to go pollinate an almond field if Almonds aren't what are the best food sources for the bees. You know what I mean? Then if you're going to do that, I guess, go take them out to party at the best, you know, clover field in the world where they really can get nutrients that they need. We're just used to using people. We're used to using things. And again, I get it. They're insects. They're insects. But the minute you lose them, you're going to understand it. And I'm just saying, don't use the same mentality with your family, with your friends. Let's quit using each other. Let's start seeing each other as distinct, unique, important. Man, 
it, you know, what applies with bees also applies with people. Stick with us. We'll uh, continue the journey, helping you live longer and love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll be right back. 